0: most well-known Bible stories, even among people who have not ever read the Bible, um, as Joe was pointing out, um, people who might not even be Christians have probably heard of Noah's Ark. Now, no doubt um, that the, the story ha- might be kind of diluted from the different, you know, dramatizations of the, the Russell Crowe movie um, that, that um, tries to illustrate what ha- what's happened in the Bible. Nevertheless, it's a story I think that people are somewhat familiar with. Um, people who are um, even um, a little bit distant from understanding scripture, uh, I, I found most often, at least in my life, that really what captures people's attention about this story is really the, just the fantastic nature of it, the, the seeming, seemingly mythological qualities. And they, they're asking questions like, did this really happen? Um, Was there really a flood? Was there really a Noah? Did, 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 did animals really gather on this thing? Um, uh, and if there was a flood, was it as vast as, it, I mean, it's above the mountains, it's picturing almost a universal type of worldwide, not universal, excuse me, worldwide um, flood um, covering the earth. Um, so that's, I think, a lot of times the questions we're asking about this account um, in, in our world. And, and by the way, uh, there are accounts of vast floods outside of scripture. So there is some historical precedent for a vast flood, the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, from the ancient Near East. There's a Sumerian creation myth called Eridu Genesis um, from ancient Sumeria. Uh, Other ancient civilizations like South America, Mesoamerica, Asia, they all have these kind of flood accounts. They have different sort of twists and turns to them, but they're all recording in some um, age past a massive flood that decimated the earth. So we do have some historical precedent to believe That this is actually an historical account of of a flood that actually happened. But in scripture, I think it's important, as important as that question is, um, did this really happen? We know that there are stories in the Bible that, you know, Jesus tells parables. You know, these things didn't really happen, but he's trying to illustrate some kind of moral, right? We all know that there there are stories told that aren't historical events. So it it is important to identify what parts of scripture are history and what parts of Scripture are not history. Um, and that's, that's, I think, on the student to figure that out. But what I think is more important than the question of is this history um, is why did it happen? Not so much did it happen or that it happened, but why? Why did it happen? Prim- primarily, when you read Scripture, the Bible presents the flood as an expression of God's will and purpose. It's not simply a terrible tragedy. It's not simply like just like a natural disaster that happened some, some kind of you know, weather thing that happened ages past that was v- really bad for humanity. <clears throat> God brings this flood according to scripture. By his purpose, he brings it for a reason. And the reason scripture gives us, if you were noticing in the reading, um, the Bible presents a really harsh treatment on the human condition and the human heart. And it sort of makes our Western blood boil, doesn't it? This sort of offends us as postmodern Americans. In the West, we believe, if we believe that there's a God at all, he's almost always a God of love. That's how we describe God in the West. So accounts like these where we see a God that's, that's sort of angry, um, bringing consequence for wickedness and sin, that's the, that's the Bible we don't like. That's the Bible we put aside. The, those are the stories we cut out. Right? We, we like the other stories about Christ that says, you know, if someone slaps you on the left cheek, present to him to the right. right? Like, but these accounts sort of, they mystify us and anger us. God identifies humanity as sinful, and he serves and executes judgment on that sin. In its counter to what I think are the virtues and the worldviews of American postmodern America. In the East, by the way, even today, um, that's not so much true. God is seen more, um, more as just than he is as loving. So a fair God, a righteous God, a God that doesn't let atrocities go unanswered is more of the issue in the East. So a lot of times our ideas about who God is and what he is like really comes from our culture rather than from scripture and what when we read scripture and we're really honest about what it says about god is that he is absolutely both at the same time perfectly both perfect love and perfect justice perfect love and perfect justice and it's in this sobering story despite the tragedy and justice that we see demonstrated by god that i think we can observe what is core to the human experience, and unique, by the way, about Christianity. I think we can see a few things. Things aren't okay. That's the first thing that we can see. Something is wrong with the world we live in. And we are part of what is wrong. The second thing, we're powerless to do anything about it. And the third thing, unless we're rescued we too will perish. Now this is sobering news, friends, but I think if we're really honest at least about what Scripture says here and what we see here, we can't get around that. It's sobering news. But once we come to grips with it, there's life and there is freedom when we're honest, gut-honest about these things. Now a text like this, I'm sure, is going to invite a wide variety of important questions. Questions that, as they were reading, you you were probably no doubt thinking of in your minds. Important questions, um, and no doubt in a sermon like this, I'm not going to answer them all, um, because we obviously had a large chunk of scripture. Um, but we need to work those out, jot them down, consider them. But this morning, my aim is to discuss what the core issues were. Some of which I just described of this story, the heart, the progression of this account. Not so much the history, but the why. What does this teach us about us, and what does this teach us about God? And we're going to note four things. Dysfunction, consequence, grace, and new life. Dysfunction, consequence, grace, and new life. Now, you might not be a Christian this morning. You might not have a faith in Christ this morning. But I want you to consider... Whether or not this is true to real life, if this describes human experience. And if that's true, perhaps the Bible's onto something. Let's first look at dysfunction. The opening chapter, if you recall, <clears throat> um, as we just read it, of the Noah narrative starts off with immense dysfunction. And we didn't read, by the way, as long as that text was, we didn't read the whole thing. We just read selected portions of chapters 6 and 7. Um, we skipped a few, a few parts of it in the beginning. I tried to get what was the heart of it. But there was extreme dysfunction. Verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. What a dramatic and sobering description of the human heart. Now the earth, verse 11, was corrupt in God's sight, full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. This dysfunction, I'm using the word dysfunction, but here's how scripture describes it. Wickedness, evil, corruption, and violence. And if you're like me, when I was going through this, I had to kind of stop and ask a couple of questions. Does, first of all, does evil like this exist? Is, does this describe reality in a sense for us today? And secondly, if it does exist, what is it? If evil does exist, what is it? So let's first of all look at that, that basic question, does it exist? Well, according to scripture, it does. That's pretty clear. Right? We don't have to really talk too much about that. But as Western postmoderns, we might object we think, well, you know, that's just kind of like a collection of opinions about what's right and wrong. We retort uh, passages like this as sort of kind of reminiscent of like these regressive ideologies from the, where, you know, Christi- Christians are almost kind of, that really believe in things like this are lo- looked at as sort of relics of the past. We, we're surprised that they even exist still. Um, and, and quite frankly, Um, It's very common to not like those sorts of religions or those sorts of churches that talk too much about um, an angry God or a sinful humanity. Uh, He's going to get you kind of sermons because of what you've done, right? And friends, this sort of message at times is true, is used to intimidate and manipulate, and it certainly is, isn't it? I know that. And to be honest, I sort of agree that there are religions and churches out there that do have an unhealthy view of God's justice and sort of distort it and minus the love out of it so that it's perverted. But I'd argue, friends, that that that's also true in the secular non-religious world as well. In spite of, you know, there might be no belief in God at all, secular non-religious folks and angry religious folks have in common something, a couple of things. Uh, Excuse me, a few things. They decide, first of all, what things are most heinous and should be fought for. Isn't that true? The group decides this particular list of things is an injustice and a great evil in the world and therefore should be snuffed out and dealt with and talked about, right? Now, the list is different. It varies from group to group, but it's there. They are, in general, innocent of those things, right? So you're in a group, and this particular thing is the greatest evil on earth. Well, we haven't done it. That's right. We're we're innocent. We realize it's wrong, and we're the ones that's, you know, and that's the third thing. The group becomes the arbiter of justice. We're the ones that are going to resolve this great injustice in the world. So we decide we're innocent, and we execute justice, that's a similar pattern that we see all throughout different groups um, of people that have sort of uh, views of um, injustice in the world that want to resolve those injustices. And I don't want to paint a negative picture on all of them because I think some of them have certainly um, correct observations and pure motivations. The point here though, I'm not trying, uh, uh, excuse me, th- there's a difference between this way of thinking and the Christian's way of thinking in Christianity. Because Christianity says that God by nature is good and therefore evil, that which is heinous or unjust, is always what is contrary to his nature. So in other words, he defines those things for us. We don't. We don't decide what is excusable and what is inexcusable. I read on a wall once. I, was, I, don't, I don't remember where I, was, where, where I was, but I was reading a, a poster. It says, most people agree on um, what is wrong but not but but there is a vast difference between what people think is excusable <laughs> right like usually the things that are inexcusable i'm innocent of right? but but god by nature is good therefore evil is what is contrary to him we don't decide what's excusable or inexcusable just or unjust he does the second thing only god is good and therefore only he is righteous and innocent That means we are all guilty of whatever it is that we're outraged over. And finally, only God is the arbiter of justice. Only he is the judge. You see the difference between the the ways of thinking? And friends, my point here is not to defend Christianity against other ways of looking at things, but simply to say that everyone recognizes, everyone recognizes We might trip over Genesis chapter 6, get a little upset about it, but everyone recognizes that something is wrong with the world. Genesis 6 agrees. Something is wrong with the world. Things are not okay. Are not as they should be. We know that. Who would deny that? How and why we know things are not okay, or why these things exist, whatever you might call it, is not the point right now. I'm simply trying to say that something is wrong. We hear of divorce, and we ache, or depending on the situation, we're happy. We hear of child abuse, or corruption, or lies, or gossip, or hatred, or slander, or domestic violence, war, rape, systemic injustice. I mean, you name it. And we all know this is not how it should be. We can't deny these things. And let's add to that our own kind of deep personal feelings of anxiety and insecurity and depression and fear. And we just just sort of know intuitively something is wrong. And if Genesis 6 tells us anything, it tells us that. It agrees. Things are not as they should be. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. You might consider that to be an exaggeration, but friend, isn't that at least in general our experience in the world that we live in? Great injustices, great tragedies left to wonder why. what is it? Why is, what is, if there, okay, there is something wrong with the world. There is dysfunction. Is it an evolutionary hiccup? Is it Is it kind of um, the the time of evolution weeding the better people out from the bad people and that's why our moral sense is just an evolutionary process? What is evil? How do we know what it is? And here is where I think Christianity begins to part ways from other worldviews. We all agree that something's wrong, but we disagree why. The Bible here says that the human heart was corrupt. There was something wrong with man, with us, deep inside of us. You see, that's the core issue. There is a, a corruption, a dysfunction in the human heart. Well, why, why, Jesus said, why do you curse? It's because of the heart. Why do you murder? It's because of the heart. Something in the heart is dysfunctional and broken. <clears throat> According to Scripture... Mankind was made in God's image. So to not look like God, to not be like God, to not be like him, is to corrupt our purpose. You see, friends, if we know that murder is an injustice and slavery is an outrage, it's because God would not do those things, and because we're like him, we recognize the injustice injustice of those things. You see? But when we we begin to take on the role of God, when we disconnect from him, things get distorted, things get corrupted. If God created us, our source of life, our source of freedom, our source of joy is all found in our connection to him, not apart from him. The first sin that we see in scripture, Adam and Eve, was to disconnect from God. Hath God said, no, he is wrong. So Adam and Eve decided that they were God, that they would define what was right and what wasn't right. That they would get their source of life and joy and pleasure from the created thing over the creator, and that introduced all sorts of dysfunction. The loving union that was supposed to exist between God and man and man and creation became dysfunctional when humanity declared independence from God. It led Cain to murder his brother Abel, It led Lamech, I don't think we discussed him in detail, but prior to this story, Lamech took on many wives, polygamous situation and violence. And we see the violence demonstrated right here. Friends, if you're not safe in your creator, if you're not loved by him and held by him, secure in him and powered by him, and if for some reason we're cut off from that relationship, evil will thrive because we become desperate to get it back. And we will use anyone and step on anyone that we can to find the safety and security and love that we once had in our relationship with our maker. We'll begin to use his creation for satisfaction and fulfillment rather than be found in relationship with God so that we can serve his creation rather than use it And friends, even the good things that we do will have a selfish motivation. We will do good things and bad things to compensate for the insecurity of being unplugged from our good God, our source of life. And there's a consequence. In the the Noah account, we see this consequence very clearly. There's a natural consequence. And we described this a little bit already, but let me just kind of be clear. To be, great, to be created in God's image means that we need him. To be unplugged from him, cut off from him, is to become desperately insecure. Now, um, a while back, we were doing some event here at the church, and there's a plug out there near the, near the flagpole. So I was like, I, you know, I gotta, um, I'm going to go plug this lamp in. So I, I went out to the flagpole plug, and I plugged it in, and, oh, the light didn't work. So I, I'm like, oh, shoot, this, uh, this bulb is broke. So I decide I'm going to get a bulb, another bulb. I go outside. I get a bulb. I screw the new one in. Go back outside. Plug it in again. Oh, didn't go on again. Now, I'm not a very smart man, right? So, well, some people think I, I, I am, but there's only, it's my mom, and she's not here today. Um, I did it again. I, I must have grabbed another, bulb. What, what are the chances? I grabbed another bulb that isn't working. So I went back, I got a second bulb, and I put it in, I plugged it in, and nothing. And then the internal bulb went on. Either the lamp is broke, <laughs> right? Either the lamp is broke, or this plug doesn't work, this outlet doesn't work. Okay, so here was here's my, you know, my brilliant idea. I'm going to go in the church. I'm going to plug this into another plug. And if this lamp, lamp comes on, I know what the problem is. And sure enough, I come in, plug it in, and bang, the light comes on. There it is. The, the, the outlet was broken. <laughs> I, I could change that bulb again and again and again and again until I was blue in the face and dead. And nothing, it never would have come on. And friends, that's a very simple illustration to talk about our own condition. We need the Lord. We need him. We need to plug into him for our life, for a sense of safety, for a sense of satisfaction and purpose. Every other outlet doesn't work. We don't come on. We can change the light bulb a million times. Well, this, this wife didn't work. I'll try this other wife. Well, you know, that, my, my wives aren't working. Maybe I should have kids. Or maybe I should... Maybe I should climb a mountain, Mount Kilimanjaro. There it is. I'll find my purpose there. And here we go. We we try all these different bulbs. The bulb's not the issue. The issue is what you're plugged into, friends. Why is it that we can find happiness and satisfaction in very simple, mundane things when we know very clearly and very resolutely that those things don't define us, because our God does. It's why, that, why we can en- endure hardship and loss, though we grieve, Scripture says, yet not as those without hope. See, friends, we need to plug in to the right thing. There's a natural consequence. What happens to us emotionally and psychologically and spiritually when we unplug and we start trying to plug into everything else and change the light bulb, and nothing's working. You see, we do good things. We get married, have children, um, have jobs, make money, build businesses, have relative success, but there's still this emptiness. It's not working. The light isn't coming on. And what can happen to us over time is we, we can become very angry and very bitter. And then our, our search for, for, for finding meaning and doing good can often translate and transfer and evolve into doing evil so that we can find ourselves. There's a natural consequence of this dysfunction that we find that we're lost. But there's also a sovereign one. God decreed that our unplugging from him, our turning from him, our not listening, not hearing him, And doubting his goodness and love, God decrees a judgment to end this violence. To end this source of violence which is in the heart. They were already living in a a turbulent, violent, evil world, and God simply provides them the end of what was the natural consequence of turning from him. Humanity turned from God, and God allowed it. And God decreed to enact justice. The sovereign God, enthroned as king, decreed it. He speaks in scripture as the legal judge of creation. The one who sees and the one who pronounces sentence. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. You know what I found in life? I like that verse when it doesn't apply to me. Because we all know there are great evils in this world. And we don't want to imagine a God or a life or a world that doesn't do something about it. We just don't like it when we're included. When we're part of it. You see? So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end. And in this consequence, we are found powerless to do anything about it. There was no one that could object, and there was no one that could escape. All living things, the text says. There are none that can hide from this. None that can resist it, because we're all guilty. And again, I know we're... Or, you know, our, kind of our modern minds are tripping over this, we're not liking this, but friends, isn't it true? Don't we know, like, oh, I'm part of that. I'm part of that problem. I know I am. Maybe, I'll, you know, you, we could all kind of reason, well, I'm not as the, the biggest part of it. Okay, but we're part of it, though, and we know it. Psalm chapter 139. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. All my. You're familiar with all my ways, my heart. Uh-oh. <laughs> you hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty. For me to attain, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I say, Surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. You see, Adam couldn't hide, he tried, and Eve couldn't hide, and Cain couldn't hide. And neither can we. <clears throat> we scratch and we claw to make sense of the dysfunction around us, to save ourselves from it, to be in control. But so often, friends, don't we stand face-to-face with ourselves and we realize we just know in our gut, there's nothing I can do about this. We stand helpless and powerless If there's something that we learn from the account of Noah, it's that. That in order for mankind to be rescued, we need to be rescued. Someone has to do it for us. And that's where we find grace. You see, as harsh as this account sounds, and as difficult as it is to hear, I don't know that I can find any other place in Scripture that better represents the marvelous grace and love of our God, the unmerited favor. If this is true, if our hearts are equally fallen and guilty, and God sees it all and is the arbiter of justice, and I can't hide from him, I need to be rescued. And I need to be forgiven outside of myself. If God was going to destroy everything, here's a good question to ask ourselves. If God was going to destroy everything, why wasn't Noah destroyed? <laughs> right? Well, if, if any of you have ever read a children's Bible, they, mo- they almost always get it wrong. <laughs> because this is what they say. Um, comb through them. I don't care which one you find. I have never found one that has gotten it right. <clears throat> it says basically this. Everyone was bad, but Noah was good. Right? Everyone was bad, but Noah was good, so God punished the bad people and rescued the good one. It, m- it might not say it like that, but that's the impression that you get. Everyone was bad, Noah was good, so God punished the bad people and rescued the good guy. Right? And the uh, perhaps maybe the unintended message is that If you're good enough, you'll be okay. You'll be absolved. You won't be on the other end of God's anger towards sin. Because you're good. And friends, that is most of what religions tell us today. That if you're just good enough, if you love just enough, if you're kind and generous... Then all, you know, all the things, no one's perfect, we say, God will overlook those things because I'm kind of a good guy, right? And certainly the Bible even says Noah was a righteous man. You can kind of understand why these Bibles would make a mistake. It says Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. He walked faithfully with God. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. We say, we read that about Noah's character. But you have to note the order of the story, okay, This is very important. It says, the Lord saw, before it says anything about Noah's virtue, it says, the Lord Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time, right? I'm sorry, but that included Noah. The, The account represents or presents all humanity as separate from God. Noah being no exception. Noah, therefore, is included in those names of people who are violent, evil, wicked, and corrupt. So if God said, I'm going to destroy all those people, why did Noah not get destroyed? The Bible gives us the very simple answer. It says, but Noah found favor with the Lord. In other words, Noah was the object of God's unmerited favor. He didn't deserve to be rescued. And neither do we. That's the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One author said it like this. They reversed it. Grace found Noah. Isn't that fantastic? Noah was forgiven by God's unmerited, superabounding grace, his unmerited favor, not because he was good, but because God was good. But you, it says in Isaiah, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. They're in the ark. Undeservedly forgiven. And there we are, with Adam, hiding, ashamed because of our guilt. And there is Cain and Abel and Lamech and Seth and on and on. All of us, without measure, all of humanity, guilty before God, hiding from him. The sons of men, Noah, his wife, every single person on the earth, children and grandchildren, hiding from the justice and righteousness of God, which they violated. And there we are too, friends. And we know it. Hiding with them as the master approaches to call us to account. But then we hear those words. Noah found favor with God. He was good after he was forgiven. That means that his goodness didn't earn his forgiveness, but was a praise to God. It was a thankful demonstration of what God had done for him. Isn't that incredible? And he found a shelter to escape the dysfunction. He found the ark. It was given to him. Friends, we can't work out our own guilt, but Jesus can. We can't work out all of the injustices in the world or end it, but Jesus can. There is a shelter. There's only one ark, there's not ten there's only one rescue there's only one refuge one cleft in the rock to save us to rescue us to hide us and friends that ark is not us it's not our might it's not our morals it's not our money it's not our kindness it's jesus he is the rescue he's the cleft in the rock he's the ark jonah was in the belly of the big fish right Jesus is the big fish. God provides it and rescues us from the calamity. Noah is told to build an ark, an ark that the Lord closed. The Bible says when Noah was done with the ark and the rain began, that the Lord, the hand of the Lord, closed the door. There was no security for Noah anywhere outside of that ark. Outside was death, certain death and destruction. Inside was life and the door was shut, and friends, there will come a time when the door will shut for us and will either be found inside or outside of that ark. What is this deep water but the image of death and this ark the image of a tomb, right? It's very interesting here. Noah is in the sea. He's in the He's not above it. God didn't kind of transform, you know, transpose him above the clouds and like in a big plane and say, so watch, watch this. He's going through the calamity. He's going through the death. But he's in the ark, going through the death. You see, the deep water is the image of death. The ark is the image of the tomb. The occupants of the ark didn't bypass the grave. That's the the waters is an image of the grave, because they, like the rest of us, bore the curse. We bear the, we still bear the dysfunction of sin and separation from God. So we don't bypass the graves of life. We don't even bypass a physical grave. Rather, we go through them in the ark of Christ. You see? We're brought safely through them. Jonah wasn't preserved from the deep grave, but preserved through it. Christ himself was not preserved from, um, preserved from the grave, but he went through it and conquered it. Friends, we all go through death we all go through daily deaths, daily tragedies, daily daily ends of things, but the Christian, those who are in Christ, those who are in the ark, in the big fish, go through the shadow of death. I heard a, um, an illustration once of a, a very famous preacher of like a hundred years ago. Um, his wife had died, and he was walking. He was about to cross the street um, with his his uh, little boy, um, and and um, uh, this big giant bus. Came by, it kind of almost hit them, it kind of startled them. This bus goes by, I guess maybe it wasn't 100 years ago because it was a bus. It was like the 1950s, right? Almost 100 years ago. <laughs> this bus goes by, and, and the, the pastor used it as an opportunity to illustrate what had happened to their mother. You see, he asked his son, Did you see that bus that just went by? Did that bus hit us? It's like, No. It's like the shadow hit us, right? And that's what happened to your mom. You see, she died, but the shadow hit her. The bus didn't. Friends, in Christ, our lives go through dismay. Our, Our lives go through deaths. But we're in Christ. We go through it with him. He shares it with us. And what can we see here but a God bent on rescue? If you really believe that mankind truly was guilty and that God is really that good and righteous, he didn't owe rescue to anybody. But he was bent on rescue. The Bible even says that his heart was grieved. The Bible says that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. God isn't some sick despot in heaven, glad that, you know, that mankind has chosen against him and that there is consequences for that choice. He grieves. And he dies in our place. He takes the death we deserved and he dies for us. This story speaks of a love that won't let go. And I hope that you can see that because God makes a covenant, a promise to Noah to restore what was lost. One author said, when things are hard, when the hand of judgment is heavy around you, when the fountains of the deep burst forth and all you have is at sea, even then God will not let you go. Amen. This story demonstrate, does demonstrate that God is just. But it's a story of God's commitment to love and to save. And in, though we pass through the waters of judgment, we, we don't pass through alone. Jesus passes with us. Friends, Noah obeyed God. Noah had new life. This is the final point, the new life. He had these things because God forgave him. He began to love and honor and obey God because he was forgiven. Every inclination, it's it's very interesting for me to think, I was thinking about this the other day, kind of personalize this. Every inclination of of Kyle's thoughts and Kyle's human heart was evil. But Kyle found favor in the sight of the Lord. Grace found me. Grace found me. Friends, it's raining. (laughs) Quite literally. But friends, it's raining. You know it is. We know it is. It's raining out there. Get in. Get in the ark. Get in Christ. That's what the story is about. The story is about Jesus. Get in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that you would not perish because he perished, that you wouldn't perish in the sea. Let him perish in the sea for you. Come get him. I hope that this morning, if you're not out of the rain yet, that you would come to faith in Jesus. Come, come in the ark. Let's pray. God, thank you so much, Lord, for your amazing grace.